there's an arresting or gripping moment in Jesus' time in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's about to go be crucified, and he's praying, and he says, Lord, if it's your will, could this cup be taken from me, this thing I'm about to do? And then he says this, but not what I want, what you want. Not what I want. Have you ever been forced to pray that prayer? They're words that Jesus prayed in the garden, but they're also words that can shape our posture, not what I want, not what I want, but what you want. It's, it's a prayer of total openness and surrender to God, but it also includes some fear and trepidation, and that's okay, not what I want. Maybe, and then he threw himself on the ground. Maybe it was desperation, maybe it was deep grief, maybe it was some sort of fear even for the physical and emotional and spiritual torment that was to come. And even from that place, face down on the ground in the garden with his disciples who had fallen asleep, praying to God, not what I want. What do those words from Jesus stir in you? Not what I want. Maybe you can find yourself relating to Jesus here. Maybe this desperate cry to God to find another way resonates with you. Let this cup be taken from me. Or maybe the idea of a Lenten journey alongside the words, not what I want, brings up for you frustration or anger or fear. Not what I want. This diagnosis is not what I want. This particular relationship is not what I want. This family is not what I want. This disorder, illness, obstacle, addiction, you name it, is not what I want. Or maybe it's a calling. A calling to be gracious in a world where I want an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. The way of the cross, not what I want. Maybe it's a calling to a career or a family situation or a particular way of suffering in life that you weren't expecting, not what I want. Maybe you're saying, not what I want, through gritted teeth. Fully aware of the clarity of God's will for your life, but harboring some resistance and anger and fear. And still Jesus says, not what I want, but what you want, God. Jesus, committing to doing the will of the Father over and against his own, is not some sort of break in the triune will of God. It's actually Jesus identifying with us at every point, identifying with us in the moments when the way of the cross is the last way that we'd want to go not what I want. That cross-shaped way, that laying down my life way, that's not the path I'd choose, but it's the path that God's voice is calling me to, not what I want. That's going to be our Lenten journey together. So whatever your posture is toward that kind of a prayer, 
the Garden of Gethsemane Jesus, the throwing his body on the ground Jesus, identifies with you in every way. Not what I want. He went the way of the cross so that we could too. And so for the next five Sundays, we're going to gather our hearts around some really tough parables. We're going to journey to the cross with Jesus, hearing the five parables that Jesus told on the way to his death. And through these parables, the grace of God and the call of God might confront you in a shocking way that you don't expect. So to set the stage, Jesus is in Jerusalem in the temple courts, and he's teaching. And the elders and the chief priests are gathered around, and this is what he offers first. Listen to this. It's from Matthew 21. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go into the vineyard and work today. And the first son said, I will not go. But later he changed his mind and went. And the father went to the second son and said the same, and he said, I'll go. But he did not go. Which of these two did the will of his father? They answered, the first son. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going into the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes did, and when you saw it, you did not repent and believe. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, since Jesus interpreted the parable for us so clearly, I suppose we can just go home. Actually, I'm kidding. I'm not going to pretend to understand this parable. It's actually really tricky, and there seems to be a lot going on, but I experience it as kind of cryptic, too. So let's listen a second time. I wonder what might grip your heart on a second listen. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first son and said, son, go work in the vineyard today. He said, I will not go, but later changed his mind and went. The father went to the second son and said the same, and he said, I'll go, but he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They answered, the first. Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are coming into the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed. And even when you saw it, you did not change your mind and believe. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I wonder what stuck with your heart on the second listen. My hope for this sermon is that you would encounter the living Christ who speaks to us today. So every point is about Jesus. We'll gather our hearts around Jesus the storyteller, Jesus the prophet, and Jesus the savior. And then we'll come to the table.
First, Jesus the storyteller. If Jesus wanted us to completely understand parables or to completely understand what he was saying, I don't know if he would use parables. I don't know about you, but I experience parables as somewhat cryptic and somewhat frustrating. And that's because I love data. I almost wish that Jesus would have just given us some systematic theology. Just clear, straightforward points of doctrine from the mouth of the incarnate God. I really would have preferred that because if you're familiar with the Enneagram, I have some Enneagram 5 energy. I like data. I like theology to be neat and tidy. And that's not what parables do. So this passage is intrinsically frustrating (laughs) for me. Maybe you're like me. Just be direct, Jesus. So if parables feel a little bit cryptic to you, it's because they are. Here's what Jesus is doing with parables and what he's not doing. Parables aren't some sort of static moral truth that Jesus is offering in a vacuum. They're not even just teaching techniques. For Jesus, parables are describing the realities of the kingdom of God that are unfolding in his very person. Jesus is telling a living story of the realities that are unfolding around him because of his life and calling from God. So I wonder if rather than treating the parables as a formula to decode or a story to map out and understand completely, Can we open up our imaginations to Jesus the storyteller? If you're looking for a point that you can apply to your life in this parable, think a little bigger. If you're looking for some kernel of doctrine that you can write down and affirm and believe, think bigger. But if this story is stirring in you wonder and imagination and hope and curiosity about what Jesus might be speaking to you, that's the right kind of posture. And I wonder if you could help me get there too. Jesus is a storyteller and he's asking for our imaginations and our hearts. Our listening posture will actually shape the way that we hear these verses too. Did you notice the very first verse? Jesus asks his listeners, what do you think? Think of this parable as less of a problem to solve or a mountain to climb or a theological system to dictate, but more as a conversation with the living Christ who might have something really good and true and beautiful to offer for your life today. Jesus is a storyteller. And Jesus is also a prophet, You might have noticed in the last verse, Jesus calls for repentance. Repent and believe. And Jesus is standing in a long line of prophets within the history of Israel who who are those who say to God's people, wake up, remember? Remember God's faithfulness to you? Remember God's covenant with you? Remember what God has done for you? Prophets are the ones who say, 
hello, your piety is not actually the kind of faithfulness that God is asking for. Prophets are the ones who say, remember God. Remember his love. Remember God's heart of love for you. And remember that true faithfulness is care for the poor and the downtrodden and the oppressed. Prophets. Jesus is a prophet here. You might remember Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, Daniel, etc. And prophecy in scripture is not just about predicting the future, although that's part of what's happening and part of what Jesus fulfills. Throughout the history of Israel, God uses prophets to call his people to repentance, to remind them of his covenant with them, and to call them back to faithfulness amidst their wandering and sin. So here, Jesus joins the prophetic tradition of calling to repentance, but instead of pointing forward to the Messiah to come, he's self-describing, and he's describing the kind of kingdom ethic that his own life and love and character and death and resurrection inaugurate. That kind of a kingdom ethic is characterized by two things. First, a narrative of reversal, and second, an integrity of word and action. First, the narrative of reversal. Jesus says this, Truly, I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are coming into the kingdom of God ahead of you. A narrative of reversal. This might sound familiar to you. Jesus has reversed things in other places. Does this sound familiar? Blessed are the poor. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Hello, all you who are unclean and outcast. I'm going to sit with you. Peacemaking is the way of my kingdom. It's a narrative of reversal. Truly, I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes will enter the kingdom of God, the kingdom of belonging and friendship and love before you, you who think you keep the law. It's a narrative of reversal. In Jesus Christ, the grace of God shocks the world, reaching those we don't choose and reaching those who we don't expect. A narrative of reversal. Jesus is saying, the ones you cast aside as unrighteous, well, they repented and they believed and they're charging ahead in kingdom life. Jesus' kingdom ethic is also characterized by a call to integrity, an integrity of word and action. And in, in this parable, Jesus lays out the, the weight of that. New Testament scholar Richard Hayes puts it this way. His critique seems to have been directed instead at those who professed allegiance to the law while ignoring its weightier demands its fundamental thrust toward justice and mercy. In this respect, he stood squarely in the prophetic tradition. Jesus' prophetic strategy here also reminds me of the prophet Isaiah when in his sermon in chapter 7, he says to Israel, change your ways, start dealing with each other justly. Your pious words, if they don't lead to concrete action in the world, they're meaningless. 
He's calling them to actually care for the widow and the fatherless and to pursue justice and to love the poor. Which of the two did the will of his father? Jesus asked. Or hear this word from the book of James. Be doers of the word, not only hearers who deceive themselves. In subtle prophetic brilliance, Jesus insists that true faithfulness is joined by concrete action in the world, while also welcoming the unrighteous, those who appeared to be living outside of God's grace, but who have repented and believed the good news about Jesus, Jesus the prophet. I wonder what Jesus the prophet is speaking to you today. And lastly, Jesus the Savior. The parable of the two sons is fundamentally about salvation. Membership in the kingdom of God, in and through Jesus. And not just salvation for those people gathered around him in the temple back then, but salvation for us here and now. For John came to show you the way of righteousness, but you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did, and even when you saw it, you did not repent and believe. The, the call of this parable is to repent and believe. That's the heart of it. What's tricky about the metaphor that Jesus uses is that the working in the field represents repentance and belief, not really some sort of moral performance that Jesus is demanding so that we can belong, but belonging in the kingdom marked by repentance, turning toward Jesus, away from a life of sin, and belief. Repentance and belief, that's it. In Jesus' interpretation of his own parable, the working in the vineyard represents repentance and belief as a pathway to belonging in God's kingdom. Even the tax collectors and prostitutes who knew that the call of God would radically transform their lives decided that believing the good news about Jesus was worth it. And their belief was accompanied by repentance, a true life change that's brought about by a relationship with the, the living Christ. Turning toward Jesus is the call of the parable. Turning toward Jesus with your whole life. First with your heart and mind, and then with everything that you have. Your entire life in the world will follow. Repent and believe. It's not just theological assent or a declaration of faith, but a whole life transformation. Repent and believe. Maybe someone here today needs to hear as well that the gospel is not about your moral track record, what you've left behind you. Because the good news of Jesus does not revolve around the promises that you do good things for God. The good news of Jesus doesn't depend on your performance. The good news of Jesus depends on the lavish mercy of God that meets the tax collectors and the prostitutes and insert your sin here, you, 
me, all of us. And what's important to remember is that as Jesus says all of this, he's carrying in his heart a call to die. A a call to take on the sin and the weight and the brokenness and the injustice and the horrors of the world and to put them to death. He's on his way to the cross where he'll bear all of the guilt and shame of the whole world. And then God will raise him from the dead and by the Spirit offer to you too resurrection life that's whole and new and abundant. So consider this your invitation. Repent and believe wherever you find yourself. The kingdom of God awaits you and the living Christ invites you to turn from a life of sin and brokenness toward a life of belonging in God, a life of being united to Christ, a life of being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So what does repentance look like? What could repentance look like for you, for me, for us as a community as we journey through Lent, as we accompany Christ on the pathway toward the cross? Historically, during Lent, Christians have gathered around three important spiritual disciplines or practices that shape life with God. Prayer, fasting, and giving to the poor. Not to perform for God, but to reorient our hearts toward him, to reopen our lives to being transformed by the Spirit, and to recalibrate our existence to the one who prayed, not what I want, but what you want. So pray, so fast, so give to the poor. It's an act of repentance, of turning toward the living Christ, because he's already turned toward you. Amen. Friends, we get to celebrate and remember Christ's utter selflessness at the table, a Christ who gave himself up and became a servant, a Christ who took the pathway of not what I want to be for us a sacrifice. Wherever you might find yourself, I invite you to prepare the elements of bread and wine or juice on the night that Jesus betrayed, he was gathered, was betrayed, he was gathered with his friends. And after he had given thanks, he broke the bread and he gave it to them. And he said, this is my body, broken for you. As often as you eat of it, do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup and he poured it out for them. And he said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink it, remember me. If you call yourself a Christian, if you've repented and believed and you're on the way with Jesus, you're welcome to take communion. If you're not at that place in life or in faith or for any other reason, choose not to partake. Thanks for bearing with us through this online worship experience. We'd invite you to consider what you've heard, to be honest with your questions and your doubts and what you're thinking through, feel free to shoot an email to Anna at pillarchurch.com or Pastor John or any one of our other
pastors, we'd love to have a conversation with you and hear what you're wondering about. These are the gifts of God for you, the people of God. Go in peace.